0: Good morning. You know, one of the, uh, the great blessings of the Bible is found uh, in the book of Numbers, and it goes something like this. May the Lord bless you, keep you, cause his face to shine upon you and be glorious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. You know, and it's interesting that I grew up going to a church randomly, kind of when my parents thought it was convenient. And it wasn't always convenient. But the one thing that I do remember was they gave that blessing every Sunday. I don't remember anything else. Never remember preaching on the cross. Never remember the resurrection. I just remember that one thing. And I just want to remind all of you that one seed planted in your heart, in your friend's heart, in your neighbor's heart, in your kid's heart, can bring forth great fruit. Amen? Amen. So never underestimate. You know, you say, well, I didn't say much. But remember, for a person who doesn't know God, a little bit sounds like a lot. Amen? Well, I want to give you this thought today. The generation in which Jesus returns will be the most emotionally broken generation in history. Just think about it. Let it sink in for a a moment. Or... Will Generation Z usher in a great revival? I began to ponder this, I began to think about this idea, and the more I thought about it, in the, the Hebrew language, each letter has not only a numerical value, but it also has a, it paints a picture. It's actually Eastern, Hebrew is, Versus Western language, therefore, it's pictographic. It it speaks volume, speaks more than just what you see. So the letter Z, Zayden, in Hebrew, means sword or sharp weapon. Z has a numerical value of seven, which is very interesting in Scripture. And it represents a weapon of the Spirit. So I began to just kind of process through that and think through this idea, because I don't know if you've noticed, there's an awful lot of move of God in the world. There's a lot of things happening at this period in history, which really we haven't seen since the Jesus movement. It's really true. Whether it's, you know, movies coming out, whether it's prayer meetings happening, uh, like Asbury, a revival, or other things, they're happening in our world today. So I began to just kind of lean into that a little bit, and I want to take you to Matthew 24, 14 for just a moment. As you know, we're in a series on Genesis, so we're just progressingly, progressing through that book uh, very slowly, I might add, but we are going to get there. In Matthew 24, 14, it says, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So one of the prerequisites, it seems, for the end of the age is this gospel proclamation worldwide. So I began to lean into that a little bit, and I went to the premier Bible translators, and that is Wycliffe Bible Translators, and I want to, I want to show you this chart because it tells us a lot about what's happening. Now, you don't really see the timeline there, but at the bottom of that, it really takes you up to about 2020. And you can see how it's accelerated in terms of how quickly we're putting the Bible into other people's language. Now, the reason that's important and the reason that's challenging is because there are many, many people, uh, languages and tribes on earth that have no written language whatsoever. So the first step is to create in their language a written language, then translate that into Uh, a a Bible so that they can actually read it and understand it, and they have to learn how to read it then, too. So Wycliffe Bible Translator says that 42% of all the Bible translations have taken place since the year 2000. Now think about when we're living here. Since 2000, 42% of all Bible translations have come into existence, so we're, we're kind of facing this world of AI. Have anybody familiar with AI and what's going on in that world and how it's going to eliminate your job and everything else? So AI is like anything else, it's a friend and it's a foe. You know, if you happen to be in a sector that where AI is going to replace your job, it's a foe. If you happen to be in one where it's going to help you, it's going to really be a blessing to you. Right now, they estimate about 70% of all sports columns are written by AI because it's all statistics. It just, you know, who, how, what's the chance of him? What's the likelihood of him batting? What's getting a home run, getting on base? All those things are happening right now. So I began to think about it, and it's according to Wycliffe, who's now using AI for Bible translation, it will accelerate – the translation of Bibles into language so quickly that they project by 2033 every tribe and every nation will have a Bible in their written language. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? Remember, there's always two sides to it. So you got to look at the good side, got to look at the bad side. So I began to press into 2033 because it was an interesting number for me. And so I went back and I found a prophetic word given by Lauren Cunningham. I think it was in 2016. And Lauren Cunningham founded YWAM, if you don't know that name, uh, Youth with a Mission. And this is what he said. The greatest spiritual awakening in the world has ever known is about to happen, and by 2033, the Bible will be printed in every language on earth. Pretty interesting. You got the year right, and that was What? Eight years ago? Seven years ago? I wonder if we're on the doorstep of the greatest revival the world has ever seen. You know, if you study revivals, they never come when everything's well and everything's good. It's the same thing with miracles. Miracles in the Bible don't happen because everybody's doing great. You know, either somebody's died, somebody's sick. Somebody's lost their job. Somebody, name it, a miracle happens because there's a problem. The same thing's true. The the great awakening, the first great awakening that came in in America came at a time when America was at a moral low point in its history, and God used one man in Princeton who was almost blind, spoke in a monotone, and he read his sermons. And God began to move in that little town of Princeton by that first president of Princeton University. He preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Not exactly a winsome title. Amen? But you see, remember, everything we do is about the Spirit of God not about culture. It's not about confusion in our world. It's not about those kind of things. We think it is because we function in the, in the natural human world, but God wants us to understand that our primary function should be in the spiritual realm, and we should see things through the spiritual eyes that God has. You think about how many times God wins wars in the Bible in weird ways. I mean, it really is strange. He'll blind an enemy then Israel brought them in, and he fed them all, and then they became friends because they got a good meal, and they promised not to attack Israel. Another time, you know, when the, when the prophet uh, servant came out, and he said, we're surrounded by a great army, and Elijah, Elisha says, don't worry about it, greater are those that are with us than, you know, than those guys, and, and he says, what? Yeah, 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 just go out and look again. He said, no, yeah, they're there, they're, 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 they're going to kill us all. And then the the prophet prayed. He says, God, open his eyes so he can see. And he opened his eyes and he saw the spiritual realm, the forces of angelic beings that were there. And before long, the Assyrians left. You see, when when you get in a battle, all you see is what you have. And that's the biggest mistake we make. When you look at your situation, whether it's financial, physical, mental, emotional, name it, you always look at what you have instead of what he has. And when you look at what you have, God becomes little and you become big and responsible for everything. But when you see a big God, all of a sudden now your stuff looks, your problems look smaller because your God is bigger than your problems versus your problems bigger than your God. How about let's, let's celebrate a big God, amen? How about a God who can take control? All right, amen. Well, I want you to see some things in Genesis. We begin this series by saying Every major issue that we face in society today is addressed in the book of Genesis. In fact, I'll even be more specific in the first 12 chapters of Genesis. Everything from gender to transhumanism to the rapture to Satan to the creation of man, all of those things are addressed, and we've been addressing those as we go, and we're going to do that today beginning in Genesis chapter 1. The first thing I want you to see is there's some things under attack in our world. And may I just remind you, it's not the first time these things have been under attack. It will not be the last time they're under attack. Because they're truth and they stand in a different realm than what we think about. So Genesis chapter 1 in verse 27 and 28, it says this, God created man in his own image. That's pretty clear first of all, that there is a God. Number two, he's a creator God. And number three, when he made you, he made you like him. That should be great, great assurance to you. God exists. He is a creator God, and he made you like him. You're not just a random blob that came into society. Your your heritage is not, you know, a single cell that just kind of made its way out of the primeval sludge and gruesome arms and got a brain and, and went to school and then all of a sudden became almost brilliant. That's not you. If you look back in the Bible, you know, when God told Adam, he said, I want you to name all the animals, it shows us that man was not created stupid. He was not a caveman. He was brilliant. You say, what do you do with all those cavemen? I've never met one. Never met one. No one else has. I've met people that I thought were cavemen. I had a roommate in college that was clearly a, a, a caveman. But he goes on to say this in the image of God, he created him male and female. Now there's the next thing he says. Not only does God exist, not only is he a creator of God, not only a creature in his image, but He also broke down the barrier of equality and he said he created you both, male and female, in his image. Furthermore, he tells us he didn't have other genders. He had two. God said, I can do everything I need to do with two. Well, say, why are you bringing that up? Gee, I don't know. Have you read the news lately? (laughs) He created them, then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. So God, is, God exists, God is a creator God, God created you like him, he created you equal, male and female, then he blessed them, male and female, and then he said, be fruitful and multiply, something he can't say to two men. I don't want to have a baby. May I go on record as saying that? I've watched this thing happen. (laughs) This is not pleasant. There would be zero population growth if men had to have babies. Why on earth anyone would want to do that? I do not know. Gender is now defined as an identity, a personal internal perception of oneself that is based on socially constructed roles, Behaviors and customs, in other words, gender is now based on how you feel. Apparently, there's a representative out in uh, of uh, of Riverside who thinks who identifies as a cat. I don't know where that comes from. Get her a litter litter box and let her go. is what I say. <laughs> you know, it's almost so crazy that it's almost funny, right? You just like, how can the absurd be actually living in reality in our world today? I don't understand it. But notice what else it says here, that it says that God bless them and say, "Be fruitful and multiply." Well, whenever you move into this world of gender confusion, the first thing that happens is it challenges the word of God as not being true. You cannot, and I just underscore it, you cannot defend that position from the Word of God. And I want you to know, ultimately, I'm not the authority. God is the authority. So you read the Word of God. See what the Word of God says. The Word of God is always right, and I'm sometimes right. How's that? Is that fair enough? Because I'm not truth. God is truth. His Word is true. It also eliminates the image of God. You see, it eliminates the idea that God created man in His image, male and female. When you when you destroy when you destroy that, everything else becomes meaningless, and it also complicates God's commands because how are you going to be fruitful and multiply if you don't have a distinction in gender? Let me give you a scripture, Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. I spoke on this several months ago and, and just about how you should have lots our church should have lots of children and 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 everyone who really has that heart, you know, go get pregnant. And and next thing I know, we had like 20 pregnant women in our church. So I don't know, one of them got the idea, talked to another one. They said, Yeah, let's all conspire and all have children. Little did I know that half of our female staff would end up pregnant. <laughs> you get maternity leave and paternity leave, and I go like, all right, it's just all of us who have grandchildren are going to be running the church for a while. <laughs> but look what it says. Behold, children are a heritage, where? From the Lord. This is a gift of God. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. Now, a quiver in that day was six, six arrows. If you have less than six, get busy. (laughs) Amen? Do you realize that, do you realize, some of you are going, okay, yeah. Just wait, though. Let's wait to get home. All right, now. (laughs) I'm sorry. My wife says, you need to. Be careful what you say. You need to hold back. I said, You have no idea what I'm holding back. I mean (laughs) what goes through my mind up here is scary. Like I'm going to don't, Phil, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't say that, Phil. You're gonna get in trouble with that one. But you realize the whole idea of zero population growth has nothing to do with Christian values or the actual population of the planet. It has to do with a mindset that says people are unimportant, I'm more important than, than the, children, the generations to come, therefore let's restrict them. And that's true, that was the, the whole mindset behind Planned Parenthood, that was the whole mindset behind all this zero population growth. The planet is not running out of resources, the planet is not running out of space. My gosh, have you driven through Kansas? If you can put 8 million people on Manhattan, you can put 100 million people in Kansas. (laughs) Marriage is under attack. Not only is gender under attack, but marriage itself is under attack. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 and then 21 through 25. The Lord God said it's not good that man should be alone. You know why it says that? Because no man can find anything apart from his wife. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Some of the old translations use the word help meet. It's really not a good translation. The idea is someone like him, someone comparable, equal with him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in his place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now, let me pause right there, because remember, everything in the Old Testament paints a picture of a New Testament truth. They're called types or shadows. Something, it's, this is like something you're going to see in the future. You see, sleep is a picture of death. So when, Jesus, when God put Adam to sleep, it was like a picture of death, that is, non-responsive to the environment around him. God put another son to sleep. He was the second Adam. His name was Jesus. He put him to sleep, and the ultimate thing that probably killed Jesus was the spear that was plunged through his rib, and out of that death, that sleep that Jesus would experience for three days, he would birth his bride, the church of the living God. You see see the depth of the word of God. When you know the whole word, it pulls itself together really beautifully. Then Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's interesting, it doesn't say flesh and blood. It says flesh and bones. In Luke chapter 24, when Jesus was resurrected... And he met the travelers on the road to Emmaus. And it says he was known by them with the breaking of the bread, that is, with this communal moment in time there. And they wanted to cling to him, and he said, Do not touch me, for I am flesh and I am bones. It seems that Adam and Eve, in their pre-sin condition, before they sinned against God, they were in some kind of a different kind of a mode, if you will, that was described as flesh and bones, much like the resurrected Lord, flesh and bones. You say, well, can you tell me more about that? No. It's all I know. It's very interesting. It's an interesting thing to note. Because in the resurrection, we're going to be different than we are now, and yet we're going to be like we are now, aren't we? The Bible says there's, there's flesh that is of this earth, terrestrial, but there's also flesh of heaven called celestial flesh. That's why when they saw Jesus, it was it an was amazing situation to encounter Jesus in his resurrected state because somehow this Jesus could talk and eat and walk through walls at the same time. I venture to say it was because time was not an issue. Time is not an issue in eternity, so Jesus could walk through a wall before it was built in time. If that doesn't make you scratch your head, nothing will. Therefore, it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So part of this process of marriage is setting up a new unit, a new household. But there's also a bonding that comes there, which is described as one flesh. That is, seeing things through one situation, being spiritually in covenant with your spouse, in a way that is mystical, very unique. So unique, Jesus referred to it in this way in in Matthew 19. He said, Jesus said to them, Have you not read, He who had made them at the beginning made them male and female? So we understand that Jesus believed the book of Genesis. He made them male and female, and he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let non-men separate. So he's saying so unique is this union that you should do everything you can to preserve it because why? Because of the covenant that is between you and God, because of the mystical union of one flesh. There's another thing under attack, and that's truth. Truth is under attack. People who don't like this message, they want to reject truth. I don't like the idea that God created, so I reject truth, and I adopt evolution. Do You realize if you believe in evolution, you cannot believe in the Bible. You realize that, right? Because it says God created, and he created, he uses a Hebrew word, he created out of nothing, a spontaneous, ignition that created all things. So when you adopt a philosophy of the world, you're immediately rejecting the truth of the word of God, which is you're right. You can do that, but just understand it comes with a price. The price is you've rejected the word of God. The Bible says if I add to or take away from the word of God, I'm worse than an unbeliever. My name is not in the Lamb's book of life. So the question is, is that what he's talking about? If I reject the God of the creator God, then am I I in jeopardy of my name being taken out of the book of life? Something to think about. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, listen to what it says. The serpent was more uh, subtle or more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, this is the entrance of Satan. We're going to deal with this uh, in depth next week, but I wanted to give you a preview in verse 1. And, he's, and Satan is described as a serpent. Much of the idea that we have of what Satan looks like, you know, kind of red, pitchfork, horns, all that kind of stuff, it really came out of the medieval ages and not out of the Bible. Satan is a fallen angel. He is a spirit. And he led a rebellion against God and took with him one-third of all the angels, and they become demonic spirits. So, here, to put this into human terms, he's described as a serpent. He's literally, in the Hebrew, he's described, he's called really uh, the shining one, the one that gets your attention. Have you ever noticed how temptation always is shining and it gets your attention? It's like not bad and dull and, you know, that's not exciting. Temptation always comes, and it's like, wow, this is like, it looks good, it feels good, it's going to make you special. And then in the end, it backfires on you. So the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, isn't it interesting? He doesn't speak to the man. He speaks to the woman. Now, there's been a lot of volumes of books written why that was. But Paul addresses it in the book of Timothy in this way. He said that Eve was deceived, okay, if you read this story further, you'll notice that Adam was there with Eve, but he, was, he did not open his mouth. So my theory is this, that women are easily dece- more easily deceived than men, and men are dumb. Because Adam had responsibility to keep and protect the household, and he didn't. So he stood back, and he let his wife take all of the brunt from Satan himself. Then, when God said, where are you, he said, you know, the problem is, it's that woman you gave me. <laughs> so blame begins, shame begins, right there in the garden. If you wouldn't, if you'd give me a better woman, but it's her fault. God says, let me tell you something, Adam. I'm going to make your life very difficult from this point on. Because you're going to die. You're going to die spiritually spiritually until you come back to me. Your job is going to be challenging and difficult. You're going to, you're going to just eke out a living by the sweat of your brow. And I, every time you're working hard and you're complaining about it, I want you to remember how you got in this mess. So it says, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now notice what, notice what Satan says to, to Eve. Did God really say that? So what's the first attack? It's the question, the truth, or the word of God. That's, you'll hear it in phrases like this. I know the Bible says that, but. Well, don't you think that was just for another day? Don't you think we need to bring that up to contemporary language? Yes, I do. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That's what it says. In other words, you question God, whether it's in the day of Adam and Eve or whether it's today, it's the same effect. Has God indeed said? When you hear a message or you read the word of God and it, it it's one of those piercing kind of messages, you go, wow, that one kind of sounds like it's for me. You ever had that happen? I mean, I do. When I read the Bible, I go, oh, that's for me. That's for me, that's for me, that's for me. That's for me. You better have those experiences occasionally, amen? You don't want it to say it's for him, it's for her. It's for me. What do you think God's doing? God is sharpening your spiritual life. God is shaping your soul so that you're being conformed to the image of the invisible God. God is making you like Jesus. That's how he does it, with the word of God. 2 Corinthians 11.3. Listen to what how Paul comments on this very same reference. As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now let's just leave that scripture up for a moment. I want you to look at that for a moment. He says, "In this, Satan is doing the same thing he did today than he was doing back then. And what does he do? He takes and he, he comes against your mind. He comes against your mind, and what does he do? He corrupts it. He corrupts it and he makes everything complicated and not simple. He says here that f- from the simplicity that is in Christ, you know how simple it is? God exists, God loves me, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, God sent his spirit to live in me and promises me eternal life and daily power and communion with him. That's pretty simple. And then everything gets complicated. And how does Satan complicate it? Well, you know, I was hurt by the church one time. Well, I was hurt by the government, the police, the restaurant, my, my, the bully down the street, my mom, my dad, my dog, my cat hated me. Get over it. Quit being a victim, be a victor. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, as you see all of these guys assembling up here for the band, I'm not even close to being done. But I like seeing them up here. They're doing what they're supposed to do. Listen, what it says in John 8, 44. He, that is Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. When? The beginning. In the garden, chapter 3. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it let me show you modern day eternal life and how it's coming at us as a society. There's spe- uh, speak, they speak of a digital afterlife, I'm gonna explain, a synthetic heaven, and a cyber soul. That already sounds weird, doesn't it? So I was listening to an interview by Elon Musk, and everybody think Elon Musk, he saved Twitter. That doesn't make him a good guy. Are you with me? Elon Musk said this, when you die, you will leave a digital ghost that will live forever. The continuing of that interview is your digital ghost is basically this. He called you a cyborg, and this is, what's the difference between if this is in your hand or this is in your head? And the idea is that the way that he describes eternal life, because he doesn't believe in God, The way he describes eternal life is he takes everything that's in your digital footprint and he can put it in another host, another person, another form. Therefore, you can live for eternity. All right, let me go a little bit further. PayPal founder Peter Thiel said, death is a problem that can be solved. And he's not talking about death, the problem solved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about this digital footprint that you have. American data scientist uh, Emily Korsinski says, sees a future where humans will be separated into digital personalities living on in computer servers and a labor class maintaining the computers. I don't know about you, but I'm the, if I'm the labor class, I'm unplugging some of those guys. Amen? Yeah, you're out of here. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't give me any life. Doesn't give me any hope. Doesn't give me any joy. This does, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. That's life-giving. That's powerful. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, know with confident assurance that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I've got good news for you. The attack will not succeed. The attack on gender, on marriage, on truth, it will not succeed. You see, they underestimate God. All through history, demonic forces thought they won the war. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they hid themselves from God, and they were ashamed. But God called them out of the darkness and clothed them and restored them back into fellowship with God. They laughed at Noah and called him a fool until the rain began to fall. Then they begged him to open the door, but it was sealed by God. They thought they defeated Moses when, he, when guilt drove him into the desert, but God restored him, and he confronted Pharaoh and called down ten plagues on Egypt. Amen, amen. And I want you to know the true church is waking up. In the midst of the clatter of empty words, we sing the praises of the Most High God. We drive demons back into hell where they belong. Satan, the author of fear, has overplayed his hand. He thought COVID and government control would stop the church, but I remind you that not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. Can you put your hands together and give God the glory today? The true church will not be stopped by man or by demon. It will not be stopped by government or big pharma or by big tech. It will not be stopped by tribulation, by distress, by persecution, by famine, by peril, by sword, in all of these things we are more than conquerors who him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come will stand against or separate us from the love of God. I want you to know millions are lifting their collective voice among every nation, tribe, people language, and they're declaring the glory of God. Revival is on the way. I declare revival is on the way. It's not by might. It's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Can you say amen?